Sorry about that. Um, so, David, what are some of the, the down times in David's life? Who can tell me about David a little bit? Saul was trying to kill him. <laughs> yeah, Saul was trying to kill him. That was a, that was a downer. Uh, and he was trying to kill him. Why? I mean, David did good things for Saul, right? He beat Goliath. Um, he played Saul's fits of anger with his music. Uh, he served him. Was a friend of his his son, who was heir to be king. And 
yet Saul was jealous of him and wanted to kill him. Because David was anointed king because Saul did not do what God asked, right? So we looked last week at what, um, as, the, as we go through the kings, there's going to be a, uh, a statement about the good or bad of that king. And that that statement would be based um, not necessarily on the events of that king's life, as far as the good things or bad things that he might have done from a world's perspective, like whether he brought economic prosperity or uh, was really good in trade and politics and foreign relations and, and had a time of peace in the land, but rather what he did according to uh, Deuteronomy 17. So you remember we looked at Deuteronomy 17 last week, and I'll go ahead and, and read it to you. Again, this morning, this is what the king is supposed to be doing. Look at, uh, it says, uh, this is the requirements of the king. God knew that there would be a king, and we talked about that last week. It says, moreover, um, back up a verse. I'll go to 14. In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. <clears throat> so that's what the people say. They say, you know, we see this way of how you organize in the world in order to accomplish good things because we've declared what good is and we want to do good things. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set over you as king. So he's talking specifically to this group Israel, and he's going to say, you know, you're going to want to be like the nations around you who choose a king, but rather, God's going to choose your king. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It's first thing. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Secondly, and he may, uh, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Third thing, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Fourth thing, and that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So we understand that the king is appointed by God for the specific purpose of caring for the countrymen, of administering the kingdom as God would administer it. So he's a delegate king. And that he was to observe, he was first to, to know the law uh, of God, know the commandment. He was to make that part of himself first. And then he was to uh, live that in his life every day. And that that would be the basis from which he would go forth and then serve the people um, for the true king who is in heaven. And so that's what the king is going to be judged by when it says good king, bad king. That's the judgment. So we understand that um, this law that's being talked about here, and I could go off on a whole uh, set of lessons on this, but I'll just make the statement, and you can challenge me on it. The law is really uh, 
centered around covenant. There were covenants um, given to Adam when he first sinned, and that death came into uh, came into our experience, and that that would be inherited by all the descendants of Adam. The the, the covenant or promise of God that is in that covenant is that through the shedding of blood there would be redemption, and that it would be through um, a descendant of Adam. We could unpack that in Genesis, but that's essentially a promise that God made to Adam and Eve, is that even though they were being kicked out of the garden, God had a plan of redemption. And we understand that uh, humanity continued to get really bad really quick. You know, if we leave ourselves to our own ends, um, bad things happen, not good things. Even though we, we claim we know what good is, we don't do it. Um, at least not according to God's definition of good. And so humanity became fully corrupted to the point where God was grieved that he had even created man. So he brought about a judgment, which we understand in the time of Noah, that judgment came um, with the great flood. And that it's interesting, all of the people groups in the world have one of these uh, myths as part of their heritage about a great flood. So this was something that happened early on in the course of humanity, and it was remembered. Right? Even today, people remember that. Yes. Yeah. You never knew what was going to happen. So, you know, that, so that, I just want to understand a little about you really knew what was going to happen, but you said you shouldn't grief on that part. Yeah, so it's kind of like um, my, my son, Michael, when he was just a little guy, very innocent. I mean, he could have been maybe two and a half, I'm thinking. Um, so he was up on, on his feet and running. Of course, he kind of was born that way. If you've ever met my son Michael, it seemed like he was running for birth. But um, I had a motorcycle. I used to really be into bikes and crazy things. And, um, so I was out washing it one day, and I could see his interest in the bike. It's like, Dad, he's doing something with this cool toy. And I was out there watching it, and I could see his interest in the chrome pipes on the bike. And uh, I knew that my son wanted to touch those chrome pipes. And I knew that they were hot. You know, it looked really cool and shiny. But as soon as he touched it, it would sear the flesh right off of his fingers, and he would be screaming, right? It would be a bad thing. Even though it looked good, it was not 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 going to be good, and I knew it, and I knew that my son wanted to touch that, and I told him, I said, I know you want to touch this, it looks cool and shiny, but do not touch it, this is really hot, this is going to burn you, right, so no sooner did I say that, and I turned around to grab a tool, and he touched it. You know what, you know what, he never experienced burn before. That's right. But after that time, he never touched it again. That's right. <laughs> well, he knew that, he knew that that dad wasn't totally blind. You know, kids, as they grow older and they have more fulfilled prophecy, they learn that, well, dad wasn't totally wrong. <laughs> At some point, they get old enough that they turn and say, wow, you were really mostly right. <laughs> and that, that's really a scary moment when that transition happens. And usually then they have kids and God brings out about it. So when that happened, I was grieved because... I could see the pain of my son, even though I knew he was going to do that because he didn't know what a burn was. 
um, and that he didn't understand fully what I was saying to him. And so that grieved me. And I think that when God declared what was good in the garden, and it was good. In fact, he said the creation of man was not just good, it was very good. Right? So it was so good that um, there was, in a sense, no greater good that could be done in that creation, and he rested. Right? That didn't mean that he stopped sustaining it, but um, the creative act of God was complete. And so we understand uh, Sabbath as completeness, right? The number seven is a, a number of completion. It's a completion of a week. It's a completion of God's creation. And it's very good. Um, and yet God knew that humanity would be given a choice, just like my son was given a choice, and that they would choose wrongly. Um, but it was important that God's goodness be truly understood in freedom. Um, freedom is really important. You know, we read that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. And that freedom has to do with communion with God, being able to stand in fellowship with him as we were created. Not as, uh, as God, but as the image of God, reflecting his glory. Right? So God, that's what God's intent is. It's just not, he can't um, do that for us because if he does, we don't have any choice in that. So there's choice. He knew that the result of, of uh, the possibility of evil would result in that evil arising. Um, and yet, nonetheless, he loved and had so much confidence in his love that he would remain faithful even when we were faithless. So he made us promises. He made promises in the Garden of Eden. He made promise to Noah. The promise to Noah was that um, he would hold judgment until the very end. That there wouldn't be a series of periodic judgments where the earth becomes incredibly corrupt and uh, needs to be reset every once in a while. It's not like a Microsoft product, you know, where you have to reboot. Um, that um, he would allow, he would intervene strategically and he would allow things that were against his will so there's a permissive aspect of God's will there's a decorative aspect as well where he decrees this is right, this is wrong but there's also a permissive will and we understand that that has to do with our relationship with him and that um, he would hold off judgment until the final time when all will then stand before God. And actually, the, the psalm we just read, the last verse, is very scary. Um, because I read in, uh, let me go back here a couple of pages, in the end of Psalm 62, this is David lamenting over the situation that he finds himself in. And he, he says this, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours. Oh, oh Lord for you recompense a man according to his work so that there is a judgment is certain that's scary right? we would like to think that no 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 we're, we're kind of good enough right but no there's a, there's a decree of what is right and what is good and what just uh, behavior righteousness looks like 
And there will be uh, a justice, a returning to right, that will occur in judgment. And so, uh, even though God knew that, um, he nonetheless was grieved. He uh, preserved humanity through uh, the means of a boat. It was an ark. Salvation was in the ark. Right? And we read how Peter, later on, when he's doing his writing, he actually uses that symbolism of the ark as Christ. That that ark is a form of Christ, and that we find salvation in him. Right? Well, that was Noah and his sons, and we see that there's descendants, and you get to a descendant, Abraham. And Abraham, uh, the promise there is that all humanity would be blessed through his seed. And Paul in his uh, later writings, would expand on that a little bit. He talks about being children of Abraham, seeds, but he also talks about the child of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham through whom God's promise to all humanity would be fulfilled, the Christ. And all humanity, Jew, Gentile, all, meaning all, um, would be blessed through him. Abraham believed him, believed the promise of God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, it may be that that God gave that promise uh, in the hearing of more than one person, but Abraham believed. And we understand that believing God does something. It brings you into relationship with him. Um, It's kind of like a close friend. Right? So if you have a close friend, and your friend tells you something, do you disbelieve your friend? You might question to get more understanding, but your underlying premise in that relationship with the friend is that you, you have confidence that what they're saying to you is true because they have your good at heart. That's what a friend is, right? And... Now, it may be that there's an imperfect friend, and so we can think of, well, you know, my friend told me something, then did this, you know. But that's us. We're corrupted. That's not God. He is faithful when we are faithless. So we have that promise of the blessing of all humanity through the seed of Abraham. Well, that then gets um, transferred down. We understand that that promise, in a sense, gets codified, not the promise of blessing, um, But the righteousness of God gets declared. And what that looks like to be in a relationship with him in righteousness. And in relationship in righteousness is blessing. Being out of relationship with him in disobedience is cursing. And so we get an understanding what we call the Deuteronomic Deuteronomy law. Second law. It's a retelling of that. Uh, understanding both to the people of God that we're supposed to be a nation of priests, but also to the larger statement in humanity of what righteousness and goodness looks like. And um, we understand that that can be codified into a way of becoming righteous. It was never intended to do that. We find that out from Paul's writings as well. He says, no, 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 no. You cannot become, no one can become righteous and, and acceptable in God's presence through um, a a code of law 
Rather, it declares what righteousness looks like. The only way that you can actually be in right relationship is through trust in him. Right? Well, he makes a way that gets further um, explained to us that this seed of Abraham would come through the second king of Israel, through the line of David. I'm going to take you to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so, at the time David wrote this psalm, Psalm 62, he had had some troubles in his life. He was going to have more troubles in his life, right? Because at the time that he, um, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, it's at a point where David has actually ascended to the throne of Israel. He's become the king of Israel. Saul died in a battle. Um, he was taken and pinned to the wall at Beit Shan, which some of us got to see that recently. Um, he, uh, so when that happened, <clears throat> David became king, and he first became king in Judah, in Hebron. And he was king there seven years. We're going to actually read that this morning. And while he was there, before he moved to, uh, or he had just, um, at that point he was looking, well, how do I unify this nation? We've got Judah, and the promises made to Judah, the descendants of Judah, and then we've got um, the northern part, which we'll call Israel. It was the larger number of tribes um, that didn't necessarily follow the cultic practice of Judah, at least not perfectly. They had the law, but they want, kind of wanted to do their own thing. It's kind of like us in Oregon and Washington. Right? It's like we're really independent. We want to do our own thing. In fact, we even talked about this becoming the state of Jefferson. And that was, no, that was Southern Oregon. That was Southern Oregon. Oregon. <laughs> I don't know. What, what do they call this? I don't know. But, I mean, secede from the Union, right? So, you know, they're good things, but... We know better. And that's kind of like what the northern kingdom was in Israel. But it hadn't fully matured. So Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was part of that northern territory. And David wanted to unify the nation. He didn't want there to be fighting among brothers. Um, so when he was actually preceding this period here, get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, he actually made a treaty with the general in the northern part of the, the nation that was called Israel, and that general was coming to David at Hebron, and David's general, over his troops, murdered him, right? And, and that, really, that really miffed David. So that was, that was Joab. And he, he's like, you just did something that really messed things up. You just killed a guy when I was about ready to cement this deal to bring, to unify this nation. And, uh, and it resulted in a lot of problems as a result of that. But nonetheless, David wanted to bring it together, so he moved the, the place of his uh, rule from Hebron to Jerusalem, or the city of David. And it just so happens that just north of the city of David, as it abuts what is becoming Jerusalem, um, at that time it was uh, just a hilltop. Um, and we read about that at the end of, of, uh, 
First uh, Samuel or Second Samuel, where there's that's where the angel of death stops, as there's a judgment on on uh, the nation. Um, but the whole point of David taking that place was to move the place of rule to the junction between the north and the south. He was trying to stop a civil war. And so he made his place of rule right there on the line. So that the north and south come together. Right? And he bought that hill that was just to the north, which later became the Temple Mount. And he wanted to build a temple there. He wanted to have God, the true king, be the center of this nation of priests that would be uh, the ones to whom all the world would, would come and be blessed. Right? So the idea of a priest is that the priest brings the people to God. And David, whether he fully understood it like we do today with our refined study of, of scripture and theology and that kind of stuff, we have, have a little bit bigger picture... David, nonetheless, had that in his heart. He was a man after God. He was seeking God as the center of his life. Regardless of how he succeeded, he truly desired that which Deuteronomy 17 declares. Right? And so he gets to this place, and he wants to build a house for the Lord. And this is what the Lord says to David. He says... Um, let me back up a little bit. I'm going to read from uh, the beginning of chapter 7. But the, the real part of it we're going to see in, uh, at, at the end of... What book are you I'm in Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. And the covenant part is verses 8 through 17. But let me read from the beginning here. It says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies... Let me stop right there. He was living in his house, which is, uh, I won't bring it up on the map, but it's, it's uh, the city of David where he conquered the Jebusite fortified city is just immediately to the south of what we know today as Jerusalem. There's a little spit of land that uh, is the ridgetop that comes down and on one side is a valley called the Kidron Valley. And on the other side is what they call the Central Valley, or Tyropean Valley. And then on the other side of that is the Hinnom Valley. And it creates uh, a series of three hills between these valleys. And the junction of the Hinnom and the Kidron, we're going to actually talk about this morning as soon as I get into this, the first Kings here. Um, and that spit going up between the Central and the, the Kidron Valley is the city of David. And that's where, at the very top of that, very near what the, where the wall of Jerusalem is today, is where the palace of David was. He lived in a house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. Right? So he had bought that land to the north, the hilltop to the north, which was a threshing floor. He had built his palace. He had unified the north and the south. He had stopped the civil war. And he was living right there just on the south side of the border. And it said, the, uh, it was then that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So they had set up a tabernacle that had that place of the Holy of Holies where the ark of the covenant would be, and that's where, uh, so David had brought that to 
uh, Jerusalem, the Jebusite city, city of David. And um, just north of that, where he bought that land, they set up a tabernacle. He actually constructed um, that place of worship where God resides there. And uh, he said, But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God's saying, you know, I know you want to do this really nice, cool thing, but I'm God, you know. I can be with you wherever you are at. And we understand that there's a how you approach God in that tabernacle, that holy of holies. But nonetheless, God doesn't need a house built by human hands. Because as soon as you build that, what happens? You start looking at the grandeur of that construction. And that the majesty of the constructor. Right? You start honoring the engineers, and you start honoring the craftsmen, and you start honoring the king who funds it, and not the God who resides there. So God says, are you going to build me a house of cedar? Why? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Right? So that... that spoken from God through the prophet Nathan is a prophetic utterance. Because we understand that Israel is almost always in a constant state of war and threat. So David still had enemies surrounding him when this was spoken. And Solomon, as great as he was as a king, still had enemies in the world. But there is going to come a time when they will be at rest from all their enemies. So that's prophetic, in a sense, prophetic in a future prophecy's perspective. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. You know, you want to build me a house, I'm going to make you a house. Right? But what is this house of David? Is it the, the, uh, the stone, <coughs> the cedar? What is the house of David? When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your descendant, singular, after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's he talking about? Solomon. 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 Talking about Solomon? Maybe Jesus. (laughs) You like Jesus, yeah. Yeah, I would say say that there's a near-term and a far-term understanding in this. And that Solomon's throne did not last forever. David's throne, in the sense of a physical rule over a kingdom in this world, 
did not go on forever. Because we understand, we know the Babylonians came in and crushed that throne. And that from the day of that <coughs> crushing in 586 BC, there was not another king that reigned in Judah and the, of a descendant of David. Because they were always, if they had a ruler, it was always from whomever their conqueror was. It was from the Babylonians, from the Persians, from the Greeks, from the, the Romans, right? All of those people allowed these group of Jews to play their religious games because they were a little uh, mosquito in, in comparison to the huge empires that would crush and oppress these people. So the kingship, as far as actually physically holding a scepter in this world, we understand that that was interrupted. So it wasn't forever. So there had to be a way for that to continue for truly forever. If forever means forever, it's an eternal kingdom, then that has to be an eternal king who sits on an eternal throne. And that that would be both in heaven and ultimately on earth. Right? So that's an incredible statement to David. That you're going to have an eternal kingdom. That's your house that I'm going to build. And that king, who will be the descendant, will build for me a house. Right? What do we understand when we read Revelation about what Jesus did? He brings us into the presence of God where we don't even need the sun for light. He is the very light that fills the house. We are actually able to be in God's house in his presence for eternity. That's what that king does. He builds a house. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. So now we see that near term. It's like we know that Christ was sinless and didn't need correction in the way that we need correction. But these kings that would be a type of Christ until Christ comes, they, they wouldn't walk perfectly. right? They would need some correction. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So we understand, again, near-term fulfillment, long-term fulfillment. This is really talking about the, uh, the perfect king, the one who is fully divine, fully human, um, the one who we call the Christ, Jesus, the man, fully human, the son of God, fully divine. That's what this promise was. As it got clarified, Abraham would have a descendant through whom all the world, all the nations would be blessed. That further gets refined. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Judah. Of the tribe of Judah, from the town of Bethlehem, would come the one, the descendant the one who would be that fully human, fully divine king. That, we understand that today. 
David didn't understand that. He just thought, woohoo, my son's going to reign forever. So, Dave, yeah. how, how do the Jews today read this? Because obviously, if they don't accept Christ and the long term fulfillment that we just kind of placed on it, um, I mean, his house and his kingdom is not there. <laughs> His throne is not established, although they did recover the the state in '48, you know, and so they're all right. excited about that. Right. Um, and certainly, they consider themselves descendants of King David. I mean, King David right. is like the rock star. Right. Um, you know, even the stars that they had to wear in the Civil right. <laughs> or the Whatever World War Two, you know, it was the Star of David. The Star right. of David has become the symbol of the nation, correct? And certainly on their flag too. Yep. So, but here, here's a scripture, and and they've been pers- persecuted through the years and centuries, and I just don't know how they can read this and say that that uh, what Nathan said was true. Um. So there's a couple ways that you can read this. I just wanted to mention that a lot of Jews in Israel today are secular Jews. Yes. In that they do not believe right. in this promise. Right. And there are the religious Jews that still are holding out hope. Right. But a, a huge number of Jews in the land today are not believers or they are not Jew in anything but name only. Right. And, and what they hold on to is they hold on to the phrase, never again. Never again will we allow a nation to attempt to destroy us. Never again. So what do they do? They build up armies. They build. They get nuclear weapons. They um, train their people at Masada, right? It's required that every person that uh, goes through military service, everybody has to, secular, religious in Israel, they're a Jew, goes to Masada and they learn... You know, we fight to the bitter end. We do not surrender. That's the secular. Then there's the religious, and you saw this too, who built their gold menorah waiting for the third temple. Right? Because they see then uh, a more um, theological understanding uh, of this promise and that they are the chosen people. They don't see Christ as the descendant, but they they see that they are the chosen people, and in that sense, you get a nationalistic fervor, Zionistic zeal, right? That, um, and you see that Zionism, both from the secular, it's like, never again, and from the religious, it's like, it's our heritage. This is our promise, right? But that promise was to the whole world. We saw that when we were in Israel, we were sitting on the Mount of Olives and, and the promise of Abraham was read, or maybe, I think it was there, maybe it was at the Pool of Siloam. But, um, and Aubrey pointed out that this promise is to all nations, right? It's not just this chosen people. They were chosen not because they were good or lovely, you know, looked good, did good, they were chosen because God would use them to bring the world to himself. And he might use them in a way, like he says, you know, some pots I create for honor and others I create for dishonor. Who knows what kind of a pot this is? Might be a <coughs> pot, you know? 
Um, and if you know what a chamber pot is, you can let your imagination go. So, so we understand that God's going to use these people for his purpose to bring the world to him. That's what he said he would do. But God will also turn his back on them if he... That, that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it's kind of a fallacy. It's like, we are the chosen people, we can do whatever we want. That's not true, though. That's right. If you do bad, then God will turn it back on you. That's right. And that's numerous times throughout the life. Yes. And that, and that as a father corrects his son, so he's also going to correct his people. He's going to correct his people that believe in him, us, the descendants of Abraham by faith. And he's also going to correct his people whom he's chosen to use. And he's done that throughout history in a number of different ways. And he's probably doing it right now. One of the things that, that upsets me is there, how am I believe? There's some stuff there that they, they say about Jesus that just make you just cringe. Yeah. And it's like, these are the same people, and, and God will not turn their, this is God's son. Right. Right. And, and at, at some point, they'll understand and they'll weep because they'll understand what they did. And, and we, just as those of you that have seen the movie, movie The Passion of Christ, yeah. um, if you don't have some water in your eyes when you watch that, you're not going to watch the movie, right? You've hardened your heart. Um, because when you understand what Christ did for us, it makes you weep. When it touches your heart, it makes you weep. The movie didn't go far enough because it ended at the cross, which is very Catholic. But nonetheless, um, that's what drives the tears in our eyes, is what happened on Easter morning. One of the interesting things that you were mentioning is you were saying that they, they let the Jewish faith do their own little things with all the mosquitoes and these people just wash them. One of the things is, is like they wanted, Jesus was ready to be set free. And they wanted him to to go and right. So the the, the point of the, of the of the whole thing is that they were doing bad then. Oh yeah. They knew that they were doing bad because he was not guilty. Right. So and to keep going on this, like we're the chosen people. Yes, you are the chosen people. <laughs> but if you do bad things, God will turn it back. That's that's right. And and that can be a lesson to us too. Lesson of obedience. So we understand from Deuteronomy that in relationship with God, in communion with Him, in obedience to Him, there's blessing. In uh, relationship with Him of disobedience, there's cursing. And that, um, in a sense, that's an axiomatic principle in the Bible. So we have uh, precepts, we have axioms, we have promises, um, we have examples. Um, we have affirmations, different kinds of principles. Uh, an axiom is a statement of what is true in the way that God's economy works. In other words, the way his creation works. And cursings and blessings is a part of that axiomatic truth about reality. And that when you're with God, guess what? He wins. And if you're with him, you win. If you're against God, guess what? He wins. You you don't, right? <laughs> Blessings and cursings. It's an axiomatic truth um, that we see throughout the Bible. So when you look at Deuteronomy and you understand uh, Deuteronomic law is not a prescription, but a description of righteousness and a 
description of the result of abiding in righteousness and the result of not abiding in righteousness, not being with God. Mitch, you had a question? Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, I don't think God ever turns his back on the Jews. I think a better statement would be turns his back on that generation. He always comes back. Right. He remains faithful when we are faithless. And the truth truth of that is, is that they are still alive today when any other nation in their shoes would have been long gone. We wouldn't even probably read about them in the history books. And it isn't that we read about them in the history books because they were the victors. We read about them because God preserved a remnant. To the very end, he'll preserve a remnant. In terms of prophecy and God talking, in this case through Nathan, um, but in, in other parts like in 1 Kings three fourteen, it's an if statement. If yeah. you walk in my ways, then I will do whatever. Uh, establish your throne forever. Uh, yeah. But this in Second uh, Samuel seven is and your house. There is no if, and your kingdom shall endure before me, and your throne shall be established forever. Um, you know, so there's no if here, right? And I think that has to do with what, the only way you can interpret that is is again say through Christ, because right. That's why I say there's a near term and a far term here, but which isn't how the they Jews took it. it all, so, so David rested in a promise of God that um, he would have a descendant after him that would sit on the throne, that he wouldn't be conquered by his enemies. Now, we understand, what does it mean to be conquered by your enemies for us? we got a lot of enemies in the world, too. Um, we can uh, rule through might and all those kind of things, but guess what? You cannot overcome death. There was only one that did that. And that's your true enemy, right? So David believed in the near term that his descendant, one of his children, would sit on a throne and it would be, the the scepter would be passed from him to his son. And that was true. But you're correct, there's no if in here. So that means that even if that would have not happened, God would have still delivered on this promise. Um, And yet, all of a sudden, because that promise is there, what happens in the family? What happens when you win the lottery? (laughs) All the ugliness comes out. Guess what? A whole bunch of ugliness came out. And David didn't always do such a good job dealing with the ugliness. Let's go ahead and take a look at 1 Kings, because this is, it's all connected in one story. I really did intend to get here earlier, but you ask good questions, right? So we got to answer these questions. So I'm just going to read a couple of chapters because this this is about some of the ugliness that comes out. I'm going to read two chapters, and then we probably won't have any time for discussion. Now David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servants said to him, Let us seek a young virgin for my lord the king, and let her attend to the king and become his nurse, and let her lie down in your bosom, that my lord the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him. And the king did not 
cohabit with her. Uh, there's other words you could insert there. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, as he was born after Absalom. He had conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. But Zadok, the priest, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Adonijah, or Adonijah, I have old ways of pronouncing things and it comes through, sorry, Adonijah, uh, sacrificed sheep and oxen oxen and fatlings by the uh, stone of Zoholeth, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, and the mighty men, and Solomon his brother, then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? So now, come, please, let me give counsel uh, to you, and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservants, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. A little bit of drama there. So Bathsheba went into the king in the bedroom. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was ministering to the king. Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, What do you wish? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, Surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Now, behold, Adonijah is king, and now, my lord, the king, you you do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance, has invited all the sons of the king, and Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon, your servant. As for you now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, and I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. Behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Then Nathan said, My lord the king... Have you said, Adonijah shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatling and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and they say, Long live King Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he is not invited. Has this thing been done by my lord the king, and you have not shown to your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then king David said, Call Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. The king bowed and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, 
Surely as I vowed to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, I will indeed do this, uh, do so this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May the Lord, King David, live forever. Then King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and they came into the king's presence. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel, and blow the trumpets and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over all Israel and Judah. Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, uh, Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. Thus may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king say, As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down, those were the mighty men, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon, and they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth shook at their noise. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Why is the city making such an uproar? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. Then Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a valiant man, and bring good news. But Jonathan replied to Adonijah, No, our lord, the king David, has made Solomon king. The king also has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule, Zadok the priest. And Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon, and they have come up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise which you have heard. Besides, Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom. Moreover, the king's servants came to bless our lord, King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself to the bed. The king has also said thus, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today, while my own eyes see it. Then all the guests of Adonijah were terrified, and they arose, and each went his way. And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, and he arose and went to hold of the horns of the altar. Now it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for behold, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon said, If he is a worthy man, not one of his hairs will fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, is found in him, he will die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. And that's where we're today. I would have liked to have read chapter 2, but we just don't have enough time. Uh, those of you that have read through Kings more than once, you already know this drama unfolding. Um, again, the question is, um, we understand that God's divine providence is involved here, but we also see human forces at play. 
trying to set up their kingdoms and strengthen their positions. And uh, we're going to find out what happens to that. But the question I asked in uh, our first meeting was, is the king's heart a reflection of the people's heart, or is the people's heart a reflection of the king? In other words, does the king influence people, or do people select the king? And what we're going to see and what we saw in this description is about beauty and power, right? What looks good, what sounds good, who can make the power play, who can get the right people lined up um, to make things happen. Um, and yet, God can, can use that um, in a way that brings glory to him, but usually it ends badly from a human perspective. So we will pick up next week and we'll find out about uh, Solomon. We'll unpack that a little bit further. Um, there's lots of questions like who's this Abishag check? And, uh, you know, what's Adonijah really up to? Um, all of this kind of stuff. Where it happens, comes Bathsheba all of a sudden comes into play. What about Nathan the prophet? Tell me about these two priests. We got Zadok and Bithar. So, a lot of questions in here. We'll unpack that. What we need to understand and hold fast to is that which David held fast to in the midst of turmoil and trouble. God is my rock. It's all about him and what he is doing. And that's where we'll end today. Lord, um, we thank you that we get to honor the mothers among us today. And that's just a great privilege, Lord. We thank you that you're working in the presence, in our presence, in things that we um, see, which we give you praise for, or ask you questions about, and um, things that we don't see, which we need to give you praise for, Lord, uh, because we know that that which we don't see and don't understand is far greater than uh, that which we do see and understand in many ways, Lord. Um, so we thank you for your invisible work in our lives, but your continuous work that we know is bringing us in relationship with you and, um, and working the miracles that we pray for. Lord, we, we uh, thank you for your provision, your protection for us. We ask that you be with Bob this morning as he presents your word um, from the Psalms. Lord, we ask that you preserve us uh, for another week and cause us to think deeply about your word and the, the work that you have done and are, are doing. Um, help us to know your promise and to hold fast to it. Lord, we thank you for that and uh, give you praise, Lord Jesus, and all these things we pray in your name. Amen.